Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Long River podcast. I'm Graham Rhodes, and I'm glad you could join me for these conversations on business and investing. Just a reminder before we begin that nothing discussed here today is investment advice and shouldn't be taken as such. With that said, please sit back and enjoy the show. It's my great pleasure to welcome my friend Stephen Wong here today. He's the first ever guest we've had on the Long River Podcast. And what I'm going to try to do is to profile some of the members from Value Asia. Stephen's kindly put up his hand to be our guinea pig, and he's going to talk to us today about his journey as an investor and also the small and mid-cap stocks that he looks at in Hong Kong. So thank you very much, Stephen, for coming on to the show. Oh, thanks, Graham, for having me. Thanks. Why don't you tell us a bit about yourself, Stephen? What's your background? Oh, sure. So I'm a local here in Hong Kong, and and I study accounting in CHK. And after graduation, I work in banks. After working in banks for several years, I work in a big four accounting firm in a valuation team. And yeah, and afterwards, I joined the current bank, which is a private bank, and I help them to manage a small fund, which is focusing on investing globally, uh, lonely, and yeah, and a high conviction fund. So we we only invest in twenty stocks. Okay, wow. And tell me a little bit about your journey as an investor. How did you get into investing? Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I, I started investing, I guess, like around 10 years ago. I remember that at that time, so I, I have some savings and and I talked to my brother, my elder brother, and he told me that, oh, uh, actually we can make money in the stock market very easily. So, <laughs> and then, and yeah, so, so at that time, he recommended me to read a few uh, journalists and said that oh maybe their their tips <laughs> are very accurate and yeah so I start investing in 2011 I guess and and of course afterwards it doesn't end well because uh, usually when you follow our stock tips without that kind of understanding and conviction usually end quite badly but that's fine because I think the money is is tiny and I think it, it doesn't make us make me learn about the stock market. And and after graduation, so when I work in banks, I I keep on investing, but uh, without any any really kind of philosophy, right? Until I I come across the book The Poor Charlie's Almanac, which I believe that is the book that changed my life. Because uh, right until I I read this book, I find out that oh, there's something called value investing, and seems like there's a way, or I mean, there's a repeatable process which you can achieve a satisfactory return investing and then i get into value investing and like everyone else i believe in this field we read a lot of books from buffett from munger and from all the value investors and you read the letters and also write up of different investors as well and yeah and this is how i start and the luckiest things i i would say that is i also made a few friends during different parts of the journey so in the beginning i guess in the first four to five years, I find four to five friends and I, I believe some of them still are our partners right now. And then we, we, we learn investing together. We come, we meet up every week to discuss different ideas. Although we don't really know about investing a lot, but during the discussion, especially with people with similar level, we can really communicate and learn from each other quickly and exchange ideas. And yeah, and afterwards, of course, because of valuation, I also... I met a lot of fantastic guys like you, Mike, and and a lot of others, which I I figure out. I mean, I know how maybe oh how how should I really approach investing and 
and and develop my own philosophy during the journey. So I think, yeah, this is how I I start investing in my investment journey. So you started off by looking for tips in the newspaper. What do you look for today in your investments? So yeah, I over the years I have tried different approach because everyone I believe that yeah maybe we have started from something following stock tips and and reading charts and afterwards yeah it comes to fundamental analysis and during the the past few years I start to realize that yeah I mean maybe there are really a lot of ways that work but you you also need to make sure that you need to find a way that match your character. Because ultimately, if, for example, if you're a guy which is very patient, you can do long-term investing. But if you're a guy which is which you can't be very patient, maybe you really need to figure out a way that that suits your character. Because at the end, you can't change yourself a lot. Yeah. And for me, I I start developing two ways. On one hand, I I still I like I like many fellow investors. I like compounders, which I I like to find, identify like. Companies with very, with a decent growth, but a, with a very long runway, and especially companies that can keep very high return on incremental invested capital. And I like to buy and hold these companies. But on the other end, I also find that actually there are a lot of very interesting companies which are trading at a very very low valuation here in Hong Kong. And these companies are usually undercovered because of many reasons, and yeah, and I find that oh, maybe these two ways can can coexist. So for the first basket, you might need to buy and hold, and for a second basket, you need to buy low and sell high in a certain point of time. Okay, that's pretty cool. So at work, you look at the long term investments, the compounders, but it sounds like your passion is for these Hong Kong small and mid cap stocks. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the market here? What kind of companies do you see, and what is it that excites you about the opportunities here? So I, I think before we go into the small mid cap opportunities, in Hong Kong, I, I, I first of all I, was, I want to refer to a formula that everyone of us should understand is that the total return formula. So when we look at the composition of the total return, there are three components. So one is earnings growth, the other one is the multiple revaluation, and for the last one. Is dividend yield. So when we are talking about uh, compounders, I, I guess many investors are, are focusing a lot on the earnings growth, and we, uh, everyone of us, believe that in the long term, earnings growth is the key drivers for for long term returns. And I think there are no disagreement with that. But what's the most interesting part in the small mid cap opportunity space here in Hong Kong is that besides you can find a lot of companies, underfollow companies that can deliver. Great long-term return. You can also find a lot of companies trading at a very attractive dividend yield. Sometimes it's more than it's like a 10, 15, or even 20 percent dividend yield here. And a lot of investors have, when I come across, when you heard about oh, buying low valuation stocks, so you said like value trap. I think they misunderstood that. Yeah, maybe value traps are usually low valuation, but actually they are also there could be possibly that good companies trading at a very attractive valuation as well. And if you look at the formula, if you can imagine that if you can find a company that can consistently, or at least you're expecting them to pay a double-digit dividend yield in the next five, ten years, let's say that, and assuming that you you after assessment, the balance sheet of the company is very strong, and 
Also, if the earnings of the company is very strong and the owner is willing to distribute the dividend, then yeah, then actually, if you look back to the formula, so we might have a single to double-digit earnings growth, and we have a dividend, and also we have a double-digit dividend yield. You can actually identify a lot of high IRL or like more than 20% opportunities here in Hong Kong. And given that these companies are already trading at a double-digit dividend yield, the risk of having some multiple downgrade, I believe, is the, the chance is low as well. So the reason that I'm looking for this kind of opportunities here in Hong Kong, because I think that actually that the certainty of these return is high, and you can easily find companies with IR of 20% to 30% without the need for any multiple revaluation. And so you don't need the agreement of the market participants as well. You touched on this a little bit, and I'd love to hear more. How do you avoid value traps where you might be getting that high dividend yield, but you might also be seeing the value of your principal slowly erode over time? Uh, yeah, this is a good question. So the reason that why uh, I think I need to explain a little bit more like why I get into this kind of philosophy. So I guess many years ago, I'm already investing in the small cap space. And I remember that I invest in a few OEM manufacturers. Yeah, they are trading at low PE and they can deliver an earnings growth of say 10 to 20% annually. But after holding these companies for a few years, I start to realize that when we look back to the total return formula, yes, I'm right. The company did deliver certain uh, level of earnings growth, maybe 10 to 10% or 15%. But the problem is that if these companies never distribute dividend or they only have a very low dividend payout ratio, for you to make money, you really need people to agree with you or assign a higher multiple, if not at least the same level of multiple for you to make money if you are right with your earnings assessment. But the problem that I experienced was that, like, for example, there's a stock with EPS of $1, say, and trading at 5 XPE. And after a year, there's a 20% earnings growth, which makes their earnings increasing from $1 to 1.2. But at the same time, there, there was a devaluation and the multiple decreased from 5 to 4. And ultimately, I, I lose money even maybe I'm right with my earnings assessment. Then I felt a little bit frustrated because, yeah, I'm investing in an underfollow space, but it could be underfollow for a long, long, long term before, yeah. And and actually, I'm, I, I find myself very similar to those people who are buying PB discount stocks because when people are buying PB discount stocks, they are buying at like, say, half of the book. But next year, it could be 0.4 X PB, I think I've heard it, Chris. So that's the value trap. The, the the problem why a lot of people fall into value trap is not because they have a wrong assessment on the earnings or on the book value, but because they didn't realize that if they want to be right, at the end, they need the consensus. They need the market to agree with them and give them the right multiple. Like, for example, you're buying a book value, a company of book value of $1 at half of the book, so you're trading at $0.5. Next year, Assuming that the company continues to have a book value of $1, if you want to make money, you still need people to agree with you. But but why do people suddenly agree with you? You cannot control that. So after investing these few years and I talked to a lot of small mid-cap investors, I find out that if you want to avoid value trap, 
besides you need to have the right assessment on your earnings, you also might need to make sure that you can capture the cash flow. Because ultimately, when we are doing DCF, we are assuming that the cash flow of the company belongs to us. But if we are using dividend as the cash flow to us and do our ROI analysis based on the dividend, then yeah, then that return really belongs to us. So one key important criteria for investing in the small cap space is that you really need to look for companies that are willing to distribute the earnings with you. Because ultimately, if you look back to the formula, let's say if there's a company with oh, the same example with $1 earnings trading at 5XPE, assuming that, just let's assume that the company is willing to pay 100% dividend to all the shareholders, which uh, I think we're going to share that case later on. So the PE is 5 and the dividend yield will be 20%. So assuming, again, next year, no one agrees with you and you're right with your earnings, the earnings becomes 1.2 and the PE dropped to 4x, yeah, the stock price is 4.8. But don't forget that because they distribute $1 earnings as dividend to you, you can still make around 20% return with your investment. And next year, when it's 1.2, actually your return is more than 20% because you can acquire more dividend. So the key to avoid value trap is to make sure that your earnings is touchable, is received by you. And also, you need to make sure that, of course, that the company has the willingness to pay dividend and has the ability to pay dividend, which means that you need to be backed by a very strong balance sheet. Can you tell us a bit more about how you identify companies like that? Are there quantitative metrics that you use, or does it really involve a lot of you know qualitative analysis and scuttlebutt and meetings with management and that kind of thing? Yeah, I think both is needed. So first, I think when we talk about quantitative, I think it's very obvious. You're looking for companies. So in valuing small cap stocks, you're using all those other different valuation metrics, OPE, PB, PS, where we just ignore that. And I solely focus on the dividend yield because that's the earnings that I can control. So first of all, I guess we need to have a company with a decent to high dividend yield. And secondly, to back this dividend yield, we need to make sure that this dividend yield is not one-off, is coming from the free cash flow of the business, to be specific. And you need to make sure that the company were distributing the cash flow in its entire history. So if you're finding a company, for example, let's say Perfect Shape, which is a beauty shop company here in Hong Kong, they pay dividend in the past 10 years, increasing their dividend per share every year. Then you know that the management at least has the intention to pay dividend, to pay 100% of the earnings. And also, they have a net cash balance sheet and has a very strong operating cash flow. So these are the quantitative metrics that I look at. And in terms of qualitative, it's no different from your analysis on other compounders. Because what I find myself in this space, my advantage in this space is that because it is an underfollowed space, if you try to apply all your scuttlebutt or all your normal analytical techniques in this space, looking for great business, great ROIC, and hopefully with a good, at least or not that management, yeah, then, and, and of course, if you can imagine that this company is always distributed a high dividend, the management would not be that bad. <laughs> yeah, so these are, yeah, these are the same 
the analysis are the same, but just you are in an underfollow space, and yeah, you're you are, you have less competitors, and you have more chance to identify some something great. So there's another friend of ours who who talks about cash flow to the business, cash flow to equity, and then cash flow to me, and cash flow to me is the dividend. And I couldn't agree with you more that that's a really important metric. But how about things like return on equity, which I know you must certainly look at when you're analyzing compounders. Is return on equity an important metric for you when you're looking at Hong Kong small cap stocks? Yes. I, I, I won't say it's a definitive yes, but usually yes. Because ultimately, I would describe myself as like a high-yield bond investor in the equity space. So I, I want to make sure that the dividend is the high dividend is sustainable for the next like three, five, ten years. So ultimately, yeah, the, the metrics are the same. You're looking for a business which can consistently pay a high cash flow to you. And like perfect shape, I believe the ROE is more than forty and fifty percent. So yeah, the best case is you find a great business with great ROE, ROIC with a hundred percent dividend payout, if not, or at least like 80%. And yeah, of course it's trading in a decent valuation because in that case, that would be the perfect case. But of course, if you can find companies with a acceptable ROE, say 20%, and if they are willing to distribute all the cash and if they are trading at a very attractive dividend yield, yeah, why not? Because ultimately what I care is I'm a bond investor. So I care about the cash flow to me. So I just I care about whether the cash flow to me could be sustainable and whether the cash flow to me could be growing at a healthy rate. Okay, cool. And you said earlier that whereas for compounders you buy and hold, you have to adopt a different strategy where you buy low and sell high. Can you tell us a little bit about what you look for in that trading approach? Like when are the right times to buy and when are the right times to sell? Yeah, before I address that, I want to add uh, one more regarding the question you asked just now. Yeah, and also if you look at these companies, when we are talking about companies that are paying 80 to 100% of their profit as dividend, and if I'm still expecting growth, you can actually derive that the ROIC of these businesses are actually very phenomenal because if they can distribute all their profit as cash flow to you, but they can still manage to grow it, it certainly means that there's some special with these businesses. There are some something that allow these businesses grow without retaining much capital. So yeah, this is also one aspect of approaching the ROE that you're referring to. And about the buy low, sell high question, I'm referring to the business with a mediocre ROE. So yeah, first, uh, you can't always find the great bargains here because uh, the great bargains don't always exist. So when you are buying some mediocre companies, you need to be very aware of because ultimately what drives your decision making in your portfolio construction is the expected IRR of the investment opportunity. So for example, when I buy a company which is which was trading at like ten to fifteen percent dividend yield or even higher, and when the value and people already start to appreciate the company and say the companies are being revalued to a valuation of say three to four percent dividend yield, then you need to ask yourself using the same total return formula, assuming the business is not growing at a double it's just growing in a single digit, let's say it. And if and if at a four percent dividend yield, what are you expecting for in the future? Are you expecting for multiple revaluation 
or is it better to reallocate this investment or the money from this investment to other ideas that could provide you with a high ROI? Because you need to be very mindful that these companies, if they are small for 10 years, usually there are some reasons, maybe because their runway is not long enough or because the business is not great enough. They are not like compounders that, which from time to time, they can always find new runway, new capital allocation opportunities and always provide you the price from the upside. So that's why when you're holding mediocre companies, you can buy low, but when the valuation is high, you better reallocate to some other better opportunities because at that point of time, you are not relying on dividend already. You are relying on uh, on multiple growth or a lot of earnings growth. Then you need to question yourself, is it better to hold another compounder or you want to hold on this opportunity? I see. So you keep that total return framework in mind. And when your future expected returns switch from dividends to multiple re-rating, you decide that perhaps it's a better time to look elsewhere. Yeah, unless there's a change in thesis, but you need to be mindful of that because ultimately you're not investing, unless you're investing in great companies or else usually evaluation do matters. So we were going to talk a bit more about two specific examples, but I just need to emphasize first that when we talk about businesses on this podcast, it's never investment advice. We're really just trying to explore our mental models and frameworks as business analysts here. Now, Stephen, you've picked two quite different examples to illustrate your process with us. One of them probably fits the model of a deep value small cap, or at least it used to, whereas the other is more of a high growth company with exciting reinvestment opportunities. So why don't we begin with the first, Oriental Watch? And why don't you tell us a little bit about that company? Sure. Yeah. Before we start that, I just want to emphasize that like sometimes I'm, I feel a little bit mixed when we're using deep value to describe <laughs> uh, these names because people usually stereotype. And when you heard about deep value, you're, you're, uh, people always associate easily with value traps. But I just want to make sure that, that yeah, so even we, in terms of deep value, it doesn't mean that every deep value is the same. So we need to be very open minded with that. And, and of course, that's the reason why there are so many undervalued opportunities in this market because people are always being taught that there are a lot of value traps. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, we can start talking about Oriental Watch. So Oriental Watch is a, a very, very simple business. It sells high-end watches in Hong Kong and China. And in, in the latest financial year, I guess 85% of the sales is from selling Rolex. So you can see Oriental Watch as a proxy of Rolex sales in Hong Kong and China. And this company has around like 70% of sales in China. So compared to a few years ago when it is more concentrated here in Hong Kong, but after the past few years, Oriental Watch keep expanding in China. And thanks for COVID, they have more sales right now here in China. And Hong Kong becomes less and less important space to Oriental Watch. And the reason I remember a few years ago when I come across this company, so I went to the investor meeting and I and I talked to the CFO of the company. It impressed me in a way that the, the CFO, instead of selling you a very fancy picture, the CFO is just telling people that, oh, this business is not a very great business. We don't have bargaining power over our, our, our brand owner Rolex. We need to listen to Rolex for everything. And then we don't have much bargaining power to our landlord as well. So we are just living between Rolex and the landlord. 
Yeah, and so I can guarantee that if we saw any loss making stores, we will just close it. And because we have a lot of cash on the balance sheet, so yeah, we will just distribute all the profit to you every year. And and going forward, we'll just find ways to distribute the cash back to the investors gradually. Yeah, and and after attending that investment presentation, oh, I I think that oh, this company, although the business sounds like very ordinary, but why not take a look? And then yeah, and then after I take a look, I was very surprised. So if you look back on the financials of this company in two thousand and six, they made a loss in the like sixty years of history. And after that, the current CFO he decided to just cut all the brands besides Rolex. So in the past five years, they have three main themes. The first is to focus themselves on Rolex and cut all the other brands, watch brands, all other long core as they describe brands. And secondly, in two thousand and six, they have around one point five billion of inventory in the balance sheet, with only four hundred million of cash. And they try to cut all the inventory. And right now, if you look back in the latest financials, they have only six hundred million of inventory left, with more than one billion of cash. And the first strategy is to start distributing all the cash back to shareholders, and also to conduct some repurchase when the price of the company is low. So they are doing everything right. Because as a like company investors, you might be looking for companies that focus on Efficiency of capital rather than on scale. You like companies that return cash or do repurchase when it makes sense, and and you you just take all the box. And the most attractive part is that the company is selling Rolex, and they are the largest Rolex dealer here in Hong Kong and China. And actually, selling Rolex is like printing cash. So if you look back on the sales of Rolex, it's very very steady. And whenever there are like any Uh, as long as they can get some inventory from Rolex, they can sell it at a very decent margin, and so the the business is actually very good. And there are less and less Rolex sellers because it's a relationship business. You need to have a very close and trustful relationship with Rolex for you to secure the inventory to sell it. And Oriental Watch has been cooperating with, has been working with Rolex for a long while, and that's why they have a very strong moat and strong relationship with Rolex. So, Stephen, let me just jump in here. I want to ask you two questions. The first one is, why did the company have a loss in 2016? What was it that brought them to that point after you know 50 years or so of doing business? Why don't you tell us a little bit about the cyclicality of the watch market and also the perhaps unique circumstances of Hong Kong and visitors from mainland China? Oh yeah, yeah, that uh yeah, you're right. That's a good question. So we need to go back to 2011 actually. So before 2011, I believe that there are a lot of Chinese tourists coming to Hong Kong to buy different stuff, buying like cosmetic stuff, buying luxury bags and also buying watches. So it was a time when if you go to Jim Satcher or you go to different places in Hong Kong, different shopping malls in Hong Kong, you can find a lot of mainland tourists. And and every local retailers are trying to expand as much stores as possible so that they can do more business for mainland tourists. But things changed after 2011 when there are more and more conflicts and China uh, and Hong Kong government is also trying to limit the number of Chinese tourists coming to Hong Kong. So we saw a peak of the Chinese tourists shopping here in Hong Kong. And Oriental Watch was one of the players who 
who really could scale their business before 2011. When I'm talking about scale, it's not only in terms of number of shops, but also in terms of the number of brands. So they have a lot of, they have different brands. They have high-end brands like Rolex, but they also have a lot of mid-end brands like Swatch, which usually the main target audience are magnet tourists. So where, where in 2016, the reason for the lawsuit was just only because the number of magnet tourists decreasing and watches is a very, is a little bit cyclical to the economy if we are talking about mid-end kind of watches. So these two factors together with the high red in Hong Kong, Oriental watch went into a loss. And that's why, uh, yeah, why I said that focusing on one brand is very important because ultimately you do not, you want to focus on the brands that could survive through the cyclicality, which is like Rolex, but you do not want, really want to have a lot of brands like, like Swatch, which itself really depends on, on the economy. So Stephen, why don't you tell me a little bit about what makes Rolex so special? and how it's different from other luxury brands like Patek Philippe or Dunhill. Okay. Yeah, I think if you're referring to Patek Philippe, of course, this is also a good brand, and I think it's even better than Rolex. When we are looking about watch retailers, the brand that they are selling is very important. So there are a few things that you need to be aware of. First, what are the brands that the company is selling? Because if you're, it's like the white, like the, like, white liquor in, 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 in China. Uh, if you are selling Maltai, of course, uh, it's a good thing. But if you are selling some lower end brands, yeah, you, you, the story could be different. I think it's, it's the same in the luxury market. The supply of Rolex or Patek Philippe is very limited. So every year they have only a limited amount of stocks and they need to allocate the inventory to all the retailers globally. And so whenever you can secure some inventory, Usually, you can sell it at a decent margin. But if you are talking about, uh, so this is a more a supply-led inventory uh, industry. But when we are talking about other lower-end brands, it's more a demand-driven industry because ultimately there are a lot of supply. They are like commodities, so you need to, yeah, you need to have a lot of store presence. You need to have a lot of marketing budget in order to attract people to buy it. So the market could be two end, and and that's why when you're selling Rolex, it's like customers will come to your shop. And if you want to know like how limited the inventory is, so we can talk about like say Oriental Watch. But actually last year they have around 40 stores in Hong Kong and China. And altogether they only sell around 36,000 number of Rolex. And if you divide it by 40 stores and divide it divide it to by 365 days, so they are actually only selling two to three watches per day. And two to three watches per day are already sufficient <laughs> to cover all the rent, all the fixed costs, and and all the dividends. <laughs> and I've I've read too that Rolex, unlike many of its peers, is owned by a foundation, not a listed company. What kind of difference do you think that makes? Oh yeah, so another very great question. So uh, if you look at Swatches, a Swatch or other other brands, usually they have some DTC stores direct to consumers. So one risk that a lot of people are worry about Oriental Watch is that so they are always asking, will Rolex take back the ownership and do the selling themselves and open their own stores? But what my answer is always like, it's possible, but they don't have the incentive to do that. Because first of all, as what you have said, Rolex is owned by a foundation. The foundation, so they're not a listed company. So maximizing sales and, and profit is not their sole objective especially sales, because right now, actually, 
if you search for the terms online, Rolex are asking for a AR days of say seven days. So whenever you secure the inventory from Rolex, you need to pay Rolex in seven days. So if you're a Rolex, why do you need to borrow? Why do you need to open your own stores involve like hiring all the people and, and yeah, and have all the capex in maintaining the stores? If you're already running a business, a cash generating business, like, like you are doing a retail business. So yes, the risk, and if you are not a listed company, maximizing revenue is not your, 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 your main goal. And besides the foundation, I think they're helped by family as well. So yeah, for the family members, of course, I think it's much fun. You can spend your time elsewhere rather than like earning the last dollar on the table. Okay. So we've got the setup here. We've got a Hong Kong company with 50 years of history, which expanded too fast during a cyclical upswing and then got caught when the cycle went down. They decided to cut back on brands and cut back on inventory. And you happened to discover this when you went to the shareholder meeting and heard from the horse's mouth, heard from the CFO. Is, is that right? Yes. Yes, you're right. I think that's particularly interesting because so many times I was pitched Oriental Watch as a deep value stock, only to see it fall by another 50%. <laughs> so what, what, what marked the change for you? Like what made you comfortable to invest in this or what made you believe that something was changing in the business? Yeah, so I, I think I started investing in a, in a company like around two years ago in 2019. So at that time, the company was trading at around 15 to 20% uh, dividend yield. The company at that time was around Australian market cap of say 800 million to, to 800 million. And they have like more than one billion of cash on the balance sheet and other 400 to 500 million of properties and also a lot of infantries. So yeah, at that time, you also devalue because I'm buying the company. I'm paying less than the cash. So it's a net net. And the reason why I'm investing is because, oh, if the company is willing to distribute all their profit to you and they keep emphasizing that and you can see, see from the track record, they have started doing that for, for like at least two, three years. So it seems to me that you're just buying a 15 to 20% yield bond. If someone appreciate it and revalue it, I'm fine. If someone doesn't appreciate it, it's also fine because ultimately I can get my return. But of course, I, what I didn't expect is COVID. So last year in COVID, the company actually get even cheaper because there are a lot of misperception on the company that the company has a focus on Hong Kong. And they will think that with, without any mainland tourists, Oriental Watch will be suffering from huge losses. But I guess a lot of them has missed out the fact that uh, the company actually has more stores in China. And during the COVID, uh, which with hindsight, we all know that uh, people are actually getting more crazy with these collections and with the decrease in uh, supply of Rolex, the secondhand price of Rolex actually increased even in a much larger extent. So at that point of time, when we are talking about uh, Oriental Watch, so we are looking for a company's trading below cash, trading at around 20 to 25% different yield. And you are expecting a very, very decent earnings because from every sources, every public sources, you can know that the sales of Rolex is actually very strong, both in Hong Kong and China. And the waiting list it's very long as well. So you need to uh, wait for maybe probably two years, three years for you to get a Rolex. So yeah, 
So at that time, I feel like the downside is very limited. And I know that why people consider it's not investable because of the wrong perception. And I think that, yeah, ultimately, I do not need people to agree with me. As long as I'm right with the earnings, I'm right with the dividend, I can, I can get 25% or even higher return annually. And I think you have. So what was really neat about this story or about this, this investment case is that it looked like a net net. It looked like some beaten down stock, but actually hidden inside of it was a real gem, this Rolex dealership in Hong Kong and mainland China. And perhaps like, if I can summarize from what you've said, one of the key insights was meeting the CFO and hearing his story about how he was cutting back brands and stores and distributing cash so that you could see that gem again and you could see it shine. Yeah. And and what I want to share a little bit more is there a few takeaway. First, I think that when you're investing in, in a small mid-cap space, you really need to be very, very open-minded because usually in most of the cases, you start with a very non-sexy businesses. And secondly, whenever you're trying to talk or discuss this idea with our investors, usually the first the first reactions would not be too great. <laughs> oh, usually it's like, oh, okay, okay. Uh, what about next? Uh, yeah. So you, you need to be able to accept that the reason why the company is cheap is because everyone is having this kind of perception and you need to overcome it. And most importantly, you really need to have a DCF. So I, I, what I want to illustrate is that like, so if, if you're talking about Oriental Watch right now, so they, they made around 200 to 230 million net profit last year. And they have a dividend payoff of 110 or 120%. And for example, if we are expecting or I am expecting the company is going to make, say, 250 to 300 million of net profit in the next three years and assuming 100% dividend payout and assuming three years later, you think that you can exit at a forward dividend yield of say 10%. So you have all the assumptions here and you can actually perform a DCF, a very, very simple DCF or IR analysis. And if you compare it to the price that is trading right now, you can, yeah, you can derive an IRR. And this methodology, you can compare it with other opportunities you're coming across. The only difference with the DCF that other analysts or or yeah, everyone is using is that you are using the cash flow to you as as discounting, as your cash flow to discount, rather than you are using the cash flow to the firm, cash flow to the equity as the metric to discount. And if you try to look at it very objectively, using and comparing the IRR of different opportunities, you, this can help you to overcome all the biases because now you are focusing only on the cash flow. You do not need a lot of any consensus. You don't need people to agree with you. Got it. Well, that is that is very interesting indeed. Let's switch gears now, Stephen, to talk about HKTV, which is a very different kind of business. And it's led by one of Hong Kong's most colorful and charismatic businessmen, Ricky Wong. So why don't you tell us, so we can understand HKTV better, why don't you tell us a little bit about Ricky, his background, and the company that he's built? Oh, okay. So HKTV is founded by Ricky Wong, and Ricky Wong is one of the most famous entrepreneur, local entrepreneur in Hong Kong. Uh, uh, yeah, of course, there's there an even more famous one, but I think uh, everyone knows him. So uh, yeah, he started a lot of different businesses. He started a, 
a telephone on international dialing businesses back in 1997. And afterwards, he also started broadband business in Hong Kong in, in the early 2000s. And two businesses, ultimately, they start more and they're not the first player. But ultimately, yeah, the businesses survive and even become one of the top two players in Hong Kong. And yeah, so Ricky Wong is very, very famous for for founding different businesses. And in early 2010, I guess, or 2012, Ricky Wong sold all his previous businesses and devote all his capital in trying to start a local television businesses. But ultimately, because of some political reasons, he failed to obtain license and and he he's being forced like yeah to to start something new and he 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 considered that oh maybe we can start an e-commerce business because it's difficult and it's what Hong Kong doesn't have at that point of time. Okay. And that I guess brings us to HKTV. So why don't you tell us a little bit about HKTV and the journey it's been on since Ricky launched it some five or six years ago. Okay. So since I guess since 2015, so uh, when actually first start, there are actually not any e-commerce players in Hong Kong. The reason, or, or I am referring to local e-commerce players, uh, of course you can still use Taobao or use Amazon, but they are not serving local customers. The reason was that I guess there are like a few reasons. One is because some people tried in 2003 and failed, losing a few hundred millions in just a few months. So people thought that it's a very difficult try. And secondly, there was always a belief that Hong Kong is too small. Hong Kong is very dense. You do not need e-commerce because you can find supermarket or, or convenience stores within a five to 10 minutes walk, walkable distance. So why do we need a e-commerce platform? And, and lastly, of course, because we have only like seven million of people here in Hong Kong. Yeah, the market is small. It doesn't justify to have an e-commerce player because it's a very scale business. So at that time, there was a few belief on that. But what Ricky Wong was thinking at that time was that because it's difficult, but that's why no one's willing to try. But if you really tried it, and if you're successful with this idea, maybe you can make a lot of money. And he, he does think Hong Kong need e-commerce because there, uh, besides convenience, there are also many factors that people want to shop online. And that's why he started that. And I believe that he made in the first five, six years, the business was loss-making, like our e-commerce players, mainly because of the scale issues, because yeah, they are, uh, the fulfillment cost is high here in Hong Kong, because the rental is high, the labor wages is high. And yeah, and right until last year during COVID, when people start to shop online, and and because literally, I guess, HTTV Mall is the only e-commerce platform with scale, and with most of the necessities, and they become one of the most dominant player in Hong Kong, and they make profit. And afterwards, yeah, I think the rest is history. They are now currently the largest e-commerce player in Hong Kong. I don't think everyone can name the second. We are referring to local players, and yeah, but they are still making profit. But the journey is still very. It's just in the beginning, so there are still a lot of improvement they need to make in terms of the e-commerce experience. So let's let's go into this because you had an entrepreneur who, if I remember correctly, was trying to get into free-to-air television, actually. And the government had talked about giving him a license, but then they withdrew or, or denied their application in the end. And Ricky was left with a lot of expenses and no business. 
And so he pivoted into e-commerce, which is, I guess, the beginning of the story that you just told us. But what made you confident that, that he could pull this off? It sounds like a very risky proposition for you compared to the certainty of the cash flows that you were describing in your earlier examples. Okay. Yeah. So I started looking this company, I guess, three, four years ago. I, I think in around like 2000, 2018. So yeah, at that time, so you're, you're, you're coming across a company with around market cap of say one to two billion Hong Kong dollar, a loss making business. And with around one billion, if one billion or slightly more cash on the balance sheet together with some investment properties. So at that time, actually, the company, when I was looking at it, is just trading at very close to the book value. And I try, and, and afterwards, I just attend every investor presentation and, and, and read every interviews of the company. And one key turning point is that when they start to automate the fulfillment capability, fulfillment facilities, and that was a turning point because finally they have the infrastructure in place which as long as they can scale their orders, they can possibly make a profit. And and why I'm very interested in this, I was very interested in this idea before, uh, is that, so at that time, I, I was trying to perform certain valuation because at that time, we know that if the company achieves a certain level of orders, they can they can be even a break-even. Um, and, and yeah, so at that time, what I was doing is like, so if you are looking globally, looking for companies that are trading that are in the e-commerce business most of them are even with a negative EBITDA they can they are trading at a very high valuation say 2x or 3x of the GMV uh, but at that time at that point of time uh, I was looking into a business which you can argue that the market cap is actually very close to the, the asset that they have but at the same time there's a huge call options or re-options which I mean, at that time, if you are performing valuation, you can you can estimate that. So the market was expecting that the chance that Ricky Wong can can deliver a positive EBITDA, or say less than ten to twenty percent. But I think that with the successful track record of Ricky Wong, I believe the chance is actually much higher. So at that point of time, I already start building an initial position. But of course, I never expected COVID would come that soon. And after COVID come. The, the most interesting thing is the valuation didn't go up. The valuation actually stayed pretty similar to the pre-COVID level because I find out that there are not too many Hong Kong investors who really know how to approach companies which are loss-making or they don't know how to evaluate e-commerce platform. So last year, I remember around April to May to June, the company was actually trading if I if I'm using an implied probability to assess the valuation, the company was trading at a valuation that reflect that actually more will be EBITDA break even is only like ten to twenty percent. But we know that COVID actually helped the business a lot, and the data are telling you that the company is going to break even very soon. So yeah, and and that's why I start building my position on this on 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 uh, more position on on Shetiwi simply because I believe that. It's a great company, or at least it's led by a great leader with a very good track record. Uh, it's a, it has a dominant position in Hong Kong. And at the same time, the valuation is cheap. It's not cheap in the sense of saying it pays dividend, but we know that the valuation didn't reflect the chance that Ricky might succeed again. 
I, I just want to dive into what you said earlier about you assess the market's implied odds that HKTV would reach EBITDA breakeven at about 10%, and you thought it was higher because of what you'd studied with regards to Ricky Wong and his past successes. And I, I just want to ask you, so, you know, Ricky's had many different business ventures. He's been in telecommunications. He's built a fixed line broadband network. As I mentioned earlier, he went into free-to-air broadcasting for a while. What made you think that he could succeed in e-commerce? Yeah, so yeah, it's a it's a good question. To be honest, you can never really yeah. There are a lot of new experiences in uh, new uh, nuances, knowledges, uh, specifically industry. So yeah, if you believe in that, uh, usually you uh, yeah you always count kind of expert. But if you look at the history of Ricky Wong, actually it tells you that he has a very good execution capability, which I always think that this is actually more important than industry experience itself because ultimately in business is about problem solving and also i think i'm not solely counting on my uh, own belief i also look at the numbers so if you look at the numbers at that point of time the reason that the company is not yet ebitda break even is mainly because of the fulfillment cost and in the fulfillment cost actually it's just because of a scale because they have a lot of fixed costs, they have invested in those automation machines. And and so the problem is that whether you believe that Ricky or the HATV can achieve the level of orders that they mentioned, which at that time is also around like 25,000 orders per day. And yeah, so I just tried to meet together with a few friends. So we together just tried to figure out that. So you, if you are talking about like 25,000 orders per day and assuming $500 per order, you are just talking about a very tiny portion of the retail sales of Hong Kong. And in, for e-commerce, the value proposition is not solely about convenience. It's also about varieties, or, or sometimes it's about price as well. Yeah, so, so there are a lot of value propositions that, that you know that e-commerce can succeed, and there are no any other place besides HATV. So if you believe that, you need to have a very strong belief that Hong Kong needs e-commerce, and given that there's only one player here in Hong Kong, which is HATV, and and HATV has a very good team with a very good execution capabilities, although they don't have a lot of industry experience, instead of saying that they will succeed, my my assessment is that whether their chance or the probability of succeed is higher than twenty percent. Okay, so. I'd just like to to drill into that for a moment. And I appreciate that Ricky brings with him success and a track record in many different endeavors. But one of the things that really strikes me is that when I see e-commerce companies around the world trying to build a marketplace, they tend to invest for years and they tend to be prepared to accept losses for years as they train consumer habit and build up a marketplace. Do you think that HKTV has the same mindset or do you think that they were trying to rush towards profitability perhaps more quickly than they should have? Yeah, so if you look if you're referring to say for example like like Amazon or even like C Shopee, I, I think you're right because there's one kind of mindset that yeah, just focus on the long term, focus on your customers. 
and invest all your profit back to the business, invest all your profit on your customers. And as long as they will come back, you can figure out a way to make profit. And yeah, I, and I agree with that approach. But in HKTV case, I, I, I think that we also have uh, had a discussion on this before is that, yeah, HKTV made a decent profit last year and they are expecting they could continue to make profit in the, in the coming future. And people may feel bad for that because they think that they should invest more into back to the business and back to the customers. And my point of view is that, first of all, I believe that if you're an Amazon or if you're a company that you can like Shopee, which you have a very good business uh, or you have some other cash flow or, or either you can find, you can make sure you can have financing from others or you have a other business to finance your, to take loss. I believe, yeah, you, you, it's probably the best way to do that. But if you look at HKTV is, uh, at that point of time or even right now is a company trading at less than or around 1 billion US dollar is a small company. Is it really? I'm just not 100% sure that whether they have the luxury to really invest all the cash flow back to the business. Because first of all, the investors here in Hong Kong is very different. They have more emphasis on profit or and cash flow. And secondly, if you are relying on, on financing from, from the market, no matter debt or equity, you are actually relying on artists to make sure you, you can survive. In good time, of course, it is always easy, but but if suddenly the, the market is bad and you need to rely on others, I believe that this is the reason why Ricky, although he can sustain losses for five, six years, he is still very eager to make sure at least, yeah, I don't think he's, make, he's targeting to make a very decent profit, but I think he just want to make sure the business itself is self-sustainable so that at least from the company perspective, point of view, you do not need to rely on artists for survival. Okay, that's really interesting. Thanks for sharing. I, I'd like to ask as well. So we sit on the doorstep with of, of mainland China, which is one of the most sophisticated and competitive e-commerce markets in the world. What's stopping Alibaba or Jingdong or Pinduoduo from coming into Hong Kong and eating HKTV's lunch? Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's uh, one of the most common questions as well. I, and I, and I think that it's always a uh, no differences from analyzing those niche companies in the big market. I mean, overseas one. So we can argue that HTV is the largest company in a very small market. So first of all, when we are talking about the market size, the GMV, uh, that HTV, uh, had last year was around Hong Kong dollar was our uh, well, US dollar is less than 1 billion. But if when we are talking about China, I believe it's like it's a few hundred or even a, a thousand larger than, than the Hong Kong market. So in terms of the meaningfulness of Hong Kong market, it's really tiny to these Chinese players. And secondly, if you look at the e-commerce business globally, actually you can find that yeah maybe shop unless the market starts from uh, unless the overseas players enter the market from the beginning. Or else, usually we find that in a lot of market, there are, the players are actually quite local. So in US, you get Amazon. In China, you get Amazon cannot compete with the local players. And ultimately, it's the local players who are remaining. And if you look at like Poland or the mid Asia, which I, I just recently come across a company called Capsi, which is a recommendation by Jeff. Uh, yeah, you can see that actually there are different small players 
that could concentrate or that could penetrate the entire market in the region. I believe because e-commerce platform also emphasize localization. So when we are talking about Taobao, Jingdong, the problem is that if you try to shop on their app, they are still offering some mainland version products to, to local people here in Hong Kong. Wow, if you go to HKTV more, it's actually all local products. You can find a local version of, of different products and people are more familiar with these promotion marketing as well. So instead of saying that there's a competition between Taobao and Hong Kong TV more or Jingdong and Hong Kong TV more, they are the competition. The company is actually behind the e-commerce platform. It's the competition between the Chinese merchants and the Hong Kong merchants. And yeah, I believe that this is the reason why Hong Kong TV Mall can still have an edge over other platforms because as long as they can secure the local merchants on their platform, I believe local customers are still more used to shop on a local platform. Stephen, that's been so interesting. And thank you very much for sharing with us your experiences and insights in the Hong Kong small cap space. And it's just really cool to hear stories of these two very different companies. We have a watch retailer on one hand and a higher growth e-commerce company on the other. So thank you very much for your sharing. You're welcome. And I can say that actually there are even more <laughs> interesting opportunities than the two that I mentioned, which, yeah, there are, there are really a lot of gems here which pay very decent dividend and yeah, and supported by a very strong balance sheet and free cash flow. So Stephen, on that note, how can people get in touch with you if they want to contact you? Ah, uh, yeah, you just you can you can share my Twitter account in in this podcast. Uh, yeah, I guess it's Stephen Wong. Yeah, and and you can also share my email on 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 the podcast info as well, so that yeah, people can feel free to contact me by my Twitter or by email. Okay, excellent. And just one easy question to wrap up. If you had to recommend one book today, what would you suggest to people? Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, this is like, yeah. So before, uh, yeah, I would say Purchase Amanek, but recently I would say a easier one would be The Psychology of Money, because I, I find out that this book actually is more easier for people to read and they can also realize that in investing, I think. It's really not about the knowledge you have. It's really not about what background you are. It's really more about one psychology and, and your perspective on money. Thanks, Stephen. It's been a fantastic conversation and I really appreciate you coming onto the show. Okay, thanks. thanks for having me. And yeah. That's good.